Please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We are working on part 2 of a, a three-week mini-series on baptism, the sign of the covenant. Some of you uh, this morning, today, are, are maybe you're new to the Bible. Uh, you might be like I was uh, as an 18-year-old, kind of brand new to church, brand new to the Bible. I didn't really have a clue. <laughs> Uh, I don't know, maybe you're 18 or 80, uh, it doesn't really matter. If, if you're new to the, to the Bible, we're really, really glad that you're here. Um, it's important that you're here. Uh, and it would not surprise me, it, it's probably um, kind of uh, more of a common thing than most of us realize, but when you, when you view the Bible, uh, it's not unusual for people to think of this like a, um, a religious encyclopedia for Christians. You know, if you want to learn about Moses, you, you go to the Exodus stuff. You know, if you want to learn about Peter, you turn to stuff in Acts. If you want to learn about um, the end times, you would go to the end, to Revelation. And, and so, like you would with an encyclopedia, you just turn to the volume that you want to get the data from, the in information from, and, and that's how you would view the Bible. That's not how we view the Bible. I mean, yeah, there's there's information in there, and you can turn to Exodus, and you can turn to Revelation, you can turn to Acts and get, get information that you want, but, but that's not how the Bible is, is organized. The Bible is a story, it's a narrative, and it has four principal parts. There's creation, and then there's our sort of ruin, uh, and then there's restoration, and then there's consummation. Uh, Jacob Sawyer, by the way, did a great little visual um, uh, picture of that downstairs that you can see. And so there's this meta-narrative, a big story that's going on in the Bible, uh, and that's really how we're looking at, at Scripture. And in those sections, yeah, you can go and, and you can find data and, and so on. Um, so among those that do believe that the Bible is a unified message, it's not just a bunch of separate parts, organized alphabetically or topically or whatever, among those of us that really do believe the Bible has a unified message, there's still division, though. Um, and there's a, what is most of the time, a, a friendly disagreement between uh, those in the Baptist uh, community, the Baptist family, and our theological family. Um, basically, what's going on there is that our Baptist brothers and sisters are looking at us and they're saying, look, um, what you're doing here is you're trying to uh, make the New Testament kind of Jewish. And, uh, and we're, you know, replying, well, you know, hey, you're sort of not embracing all that's um, uh, prophetically or uh, foreshadowing what is Christian in the Old Testament, right? And so this really comes to bear when, it, when, it, when you ask, well, do you put the sign of the covenant, baptism, uh, do you put that sign on babies? You know, so we're part of a tradition that believes that even the infants of, uh, if mom and dad both believe, that's great, but even if just one parent believes, you would, you would still set that child apart as receiving the sign of God's covenant. Um, so that's a, that's a little bit of a, of a family-friendly feud. Most of the time it's friendly, sometimes it's not, sadly. Uh, but really what I want to ask all of us here, whether you've got a Baptist background or whether you're sort of Presbyterian for life, whatever the case may be, 
we're doing this series also so that you, you can you know, ask yourself and you can be challenged, what, what do you believe? Not just sort of what camp do you belong to, but why? And where do you go to get that, that information? Where is your conviction coming from? Um, and so this morning, uh, we are looking at specifically the sign of baptism. Last week, we were talking about the God of the covenant. Uh, next week, we'll talk about the children of the covenant. But let's stand in honor of God's word to hear about the sign, God's sign of the covenant. We're going to pick up at the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon. So we're going to really look at really the last uh, line of his sermon and then the reaction of uh, those who were gathered to hear Peter. So I'm going to begin in verse 36. Uh, Peter concluded his sermon, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for loving us, for giving us your word, for giving us your Son, for giving us your Spirit. Uh, We pray that you would bless your word through your Spirit. Uh, We would see more of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so I want to zero in on the, the reaction of the, those who were assembled at Pentecost and then uh, talk more about Peter's, um, Peter's exhortation to them in response. You know, when, when uh, we're describing this, this crowd after Peter finishes his sermon, um, Luke, who's the author of Acts, says in verse 37 that uh, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Um, you know, that's a very vivid description of what happened uh, to those 3,000, you know, um, estimated people who were hearing Peter. And they were in town uh, for the uh, Pentecost feast. And this was about 50 days following the Passover feast. Passover was the time when Jesus uh, did his last supper, and then you know he was crucified the next day. And the following Sunday, he rose from the dead. Now this is, as I said, 50 days later at Pentecost, which is what that name means. And now they're gathered. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. Peter has been transformed, and he's preaching boldly. And they're talking about Jesus, whom they had crucified. Presumably, there's even some in attendance who 50 days earlier were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And these now are realizing, 
we got it all wrong. We shouldn't have crucified Jesus. We should have worshipped Him, right? And so they're, they're coming to grips with that. They're cut to the heart. When's the last time you had an experience of realizing, I had it all wrong? Like, you know, maybe you're a weather forecaster. Earlier this week, and you were predicting the blizzard of 2018 uh, for this weekend, and you had it all wrong. <laughs> or, uh, or maybe you were a sports analyst uh, back in the fall. You didn't even pick UVA men's basketball to be nationally ranked, much less win the ACC title last night. We can do better than that. There, yeah, okay. Wahoo wah. I'm supposed to do that now. I've got a, I've, I've got a cavalier in the family. Um, so we'll see. I mean, they're not picking. People are, it's so funny because now, like, they're saying there's all this pressure, right, on, on the cavaliers because if they don't get into the final four, it's going to be like some disappointment. Oh, my word. Um, but they had it all wrong. Uh, and, and so what is that like? When's the last time you had it all wrong? Let me just, let me, let me even cut to the chase. When, have you ever? <laughs> Have you ever had it all wrong? There are some of you who are absolutely impossible to live with because you've never had it all wrong. You've, you'll never admit that. So you've got everybody here in Jerusalem. And back in, uh, in, here in, in, in chapter 2 in Acts, um, verse 31, Peter says, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that, we are all witnesses. So now everybody's seeing, we had it all wrong about Jesus. And that they're realizing this moment has come when, wait a minute, he wasn't lying. Or they're realizing, wait a minute, he wasn't, he wasn't crazy. He was, uh, he was telling the truth, and, and he, was, he was real, and he was exactly who he said he was. He was the Lord and the Christ, and, and we've had it all wrong. And now what do we what do we do? How do you atone for that big of a mistake? You know, and even 2,000 years later, here we are, and, and conviction and being cut to the heart is what happens in every person's heart. Every, prayerfully, every single one of us in this room has had this moment where we have realized, I did have it all wrong. There's a point in our lives, um, and maybe you've you can't remember a time when you, you, you didn't really realize that Jesus is who he says he was, but there's moments, right, where it sort of becomes more real, more vivid, where the dots connect in a special way, and you realize Jesus really was telling the truth. He wasn't a liar. He wasn't a lunatic. He wasn't a legend. He was real. This is real. What he said was real. Heaven is Heaven is real. Hell, hell is real. Eternity is real. And when those things come into vivid color and, and reality starts to crush in on your soul, you go, oh no, because we know that our sin is real too. How can I atone for what I've done wrong? How can I atone for the mistakes that I've done? And so that's the reaction of this crowd. This, all these 3,000 souls were anxiously asking, brothers, what, what do we do? In light of reality, in light of our 
cosmic failure um, to acknowledge Jesus when he was with us. Now, how can we get on the right side, not just the right side of history, people, the right side of eternity? How can I make this right? And so Peter's response to them in verse 38 is um, repent. Turn from trusting in yourself, turn from your mistake, and turn to Jesus um, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, they, and in verse 41, we're told those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added uh, to his, that day about 3,000 souls. So this has always been the proper response to believing the gospel for the first time, right? Um, you, when, when, when you see reality for what it is, and you're cut to the heart, and you go, oh no, I had it all wrong, and you turn to Jesus, and you repent. That's really what repentance means, turning from ourselves and relying on ourselves and trusting in ourselves to rely on Jesus and, and trusting in Jesus. And furthermore, um, these who were, had not been baptized before are demonstrating the, the truth of their conviction, the truth of their repentance by being baptized and receiving God's sign of God's covenant through God's salvation onto themselves by being baptized. So we, I, I do want to set the record straight. As Presbyterians, we believe in believer's baptism. We believe this is right. This is good. If you come to Jesus, you repent of your sins. If you haven't been baptized before, you need to be baptized and, and make that public and receive God's sign of His covenant. What do we believe about baptism? Um, let me quote to use some very old words. These go back to the 17th century, so please forgive a little bit of the King James sort of uh, English, but our shorter catechism asks the question, what is baptism? And the answer says, baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost doth, there you go, uh, doth signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. Um, really central to that response in all of the Elizabethan English is the, the language signify and seal our engrafting into Christ. Um, remember when Jesus in John 15 was saying, I'm the vine and you're the branches. We get grafted into Jesus. That's, that's a picture of union with Christ. That's at the heart of the gospel. Is that we who had you know, been cut off, we who had wandered off, we who were, were dead in our sins and trespasses are made alive together, rejoined to the source of life in Jesus, and we now become vines. He's the branch and we bear fruit for God. That union with Christ is so central to the covenant. When God says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. We actually have this in common with our Baptist brothers and sisters because 40 years after the Westminster Standards were penned, um, our, our Baptist brothers and sisters basically did a, uh, a copy and paste job and put together the London Confession. And they, they tweaked, the, obviously, the chapter on baptism because they, they weren't in agreement with, um, with where our forefathers and, and mothers were. So that's different. But everything else is the same, especially, um, and even there is some overlap about baptism because both documents, sort of the Presbyterians and the Baptists, both have the same language when it comes to baptism about being engrafted into Christ. 
And then here in the States, the Philadelphia Confession, which was basically the, adopting the London Confession, same language. So our tradition, Baptist tradition, share a sense that at the heart of baptism is this picture of being united to Jesus, union with Christ, being engrafted into Him. And so for a new believer, baptism is a way Agreeing to be baptized is a way of keeping the covenant that God has made with us through Jesus. It's a way of our demonstrating, I am keeping hold of the one who kept the covenant for me, Jesus, the covenant keeper. Now, um, more about baptism. We, we believe, right, that baptism is a way of demonstrating I'm now keeping the covenant, but it's not something that saves you. Uh, it's not necessary to be saved, and uh, you know you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Uh, at the same time, um, we also we look at the thief on the cross, and we go, he professed faith in Jesus. Jesus said, "You're united to me. You're going to be with me in paradise." But the thief on the cross was never baptized. At the same time, though, just because somebody is baptized doesn't mean, therefore, that they are guaranteed. To be with God. It doesn't mean because you have water placed on you that you're united to Jesus. Um, the evidence isn't as clear, but it seems like later on in the book of Acts, a guy named Simon, he was a magician. He was baptized, but then there's this very troubling and disturbing scene where, where you know, Peter is condemning Simon, and it looks like Simon's faith isn't genuine. Um, and, and so there's different opinions about what happened, but it sort of looks like he was baptized but wasn't saved. So it works both ways. So um, what we do know from Acts chapter 2 is that 3,000 people are cut to the heart. They turn and they believe in Jesus. And I mean, it says in that day, right, uh, all, that th- about 3,000 souls were added. Were, were 3,000 people baptized at the same time? Um, we're not sure. We're not given those, those details, but, um, but you know, if, if you're going to insist that, you know, yeah, they were all baptized on that same day, and, and the conventional picture, you know, especially in our community in the valley, um, which the, where the Christian community is predominantly Baptist, we're a minority, uh, hasn't always been the case, uh, but the conventional idea is that there's immersion, and, you know, everybody goes under the water, and they come back up, and that's baptism. Can I just, let's, let's just do a little math right now. Um, if, if we were going to baptize everybody here, there's, I don't know, 150 people. How long would that take us? If every single one of you lined up and we did, let's just even do the assembly line baptisms, you know, one per, uh, per minute. I mean, let's go that fast. Every 60 seconds, one of you is going to go under the water or something like that. How long is that going to take? 150 people, if I'm doing the baptism, we're going to be here two hours. There's going to be some rumbly tumbly tummies you know, at the end of that. So if you do the math, and if let's just grant that a dozen apostles were doing baptisms nonstop, one a minute, 3,000 souls, they would have been at it for five hours. Now, we don't really know if all that took place in one day. We're not even... Uh, hang with me here for a second. We're not even sure that they were all immersed I don't know, maybe there was a better way to do it. You know, where Peter just turns the fire hose 
on everybody and just hoses them down. All right, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there we go. You know, that took all of 30 seconds. Uh, 3,000 souls added to their number. Um, Let's talk about the mode. You know, people have different opinions within, you know, hopefully this is a friendly family feud. This doesn't need to become bitter and we don't need to start, you know, being nasty toward one another. But, but obviously people have differences of opinion, differences of conviction about how you do baptism. So, you know, what we do is we've got a bowl with water. And if you've been here when we've done the baptism, you know that I'll, I'll take this bowl and I'll, I'll pour the water over the head of the person being baptized. So the water comes over and it pours over them. And, and that's really an image that comes right out of Acts, right out of Peter right here in chapter 2, where he's saying that what's being depicted is this promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out, which is a, underneath the bigger promise, the covenant of grace promise of, again, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. So the Spirit being poured out is the Spirit of adoption, it's the Spirit of God being given to His people, confirming that we belong to Him and that He's ours. Others um, will, instead of pour the water, they'll, they'll just go ahead and they'll, they'll sprinkle it. They'll just do a few drops and it's, it's much neater and nicer that way, but I like pouring. Um, why do they sprinkle? What's sprinkling about? Well, that goes again back to recognizing that there's a whole meta-narrative here that in Numbers and in Leviticus and even in Hebrews... There's the language that's um, borrowing from, uh, from the psalm, Psalm 51. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. The, uh, the ancient ritual was to take the blood of the sacrifice, mix it with water, you take a hyssop branch, and then you sprinkle everybody, right? So you're going to get a little wet here. Sorry, I can't get way out to the corner, but there you go. Don't worry, we don't believe in rebaptism. Not, you, know, you don't have to be upset that you were rebaptized here, but... But you get a little, it's, it's far more expedient, right? Is this what Peter was doing? I mean, he was doing the old, old school kind of baptizing. Uh, when you run into the word baptism in the New Testament, uh, I believe, I, I want to keep this friendly, I really believe that our Baptist brothers and sisters are well-intentioned when they talk about how baptism is to be administered, but the insistence that it is to be immersion only, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling with that because when they t- pull out their Greek lexicon and they turn to the word baptizomai, uh, you cannot insist that every time you run into that word in the New Testament, it means to immerse. Uh, at its fundamental level, what that word means is to wash. And washing can, can have a bunch of different ways that it's expressed. Obviously, uh, let me move the fire hose. Obviously, washing can mean to plunge that sucker under the water line and you know, there's full immersion. Or it can be the washing that you use with a sponge or a washcloth and you know, you're washing that, that, that thing uh, clean. It has a ceremonial meaning too. The, the washing that would you know, purify or symbolically cleanse something. And that's, that's what that um, Old Testament picture of, of the sprinkling is all about, that Hebrews talks about. It's in the New Testament too. Um, and then you get to the, the craziest use of, uh, of baptism in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 10, 
where Paul talks about, again, you know, the meta-narrative, God's covenant of grace expressed through Moses when Israel is delivered at the Red Sea. Do you remember that? Israel's delivered at the Red Sea. And, and Paul tells us that, that they were all baptized into Moses. That's the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. They were baptized into Moses. And if there's anything that we're supposed to take away from the incident at the Red Sea, is that Israel did not get wet. And they passed through on dry ground. And so you cannot insist that every time there's a baptism in the New Testament that it was immersion. We just don't know. And if we're going to be biblical, if we're going to really kind of be faithful to the Scripture, there's just not enough information given to us where you can say for sure either way. So for my part, for our part, we're not here insisting that none of the baptisms in the New Testament were ever immersion. We can't do that. There's not enough detail. It's just simply a generic word, baptism. And it can mean a lot of different things. Um, nor do I think that our Baptist brothers and sisters should ever insist that all of the baptisms in the New Testament were immersion only. Does that make sense? What is baptism? Uh, let's not forget, the, the point is not how it's applied. The point is that it's water. The point is that it's a picture of purity, of cleansing, of God setting us apart. It's a picture of God's covenant promises coming to His covenant people where He puts His sign on His people. Do you remember Toy Story? Uh, do you remember uh, Andy when he's got Woody? And Woody belongs to him. And Andy puts his name on the bottom of Woody's boot. And then along comes Buzz. And Buzz belongs to Andy too. And what does Andy do? Andy puts his name on the bottom of Buzz's boot. I like how one, one scholar puts it. He says that when used in baptism, um, the expression, the name, an anima, indicates that the person baptized becomes the property of and is assigned to the company of Jesus. We become His people. He puts His sign on us. He's not going to misplace us. He's not going to lose us. The, 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 the assurance that we're supposed to take away from baptism is that God is faithful to His promises. That's what it's a sign of. Um, so, when you look at the reaction of the people and they're being cut to the heart, Peter tells them, repent, take the sign of God's promises upon you, uh, and that's how you can uh, you know, get out of this, this awful circumstance where you realize, I have had it all wrong. And the way that you get on the right side of not just history, but on the right side of eternity is to take upon yourself the name of Jesus. To become a Christian. To become a little Christ. To be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not the baptism that saves you. It's what the baptism is pointing to. The God who saves His people. So now, more of Peter's response. He's, he's talking about this promise in verse 39. That the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone who calls on, our, who calls on the name of the Lord our God, right? Um, so this is this 
promise that again refers to the big covenant of grace. It's it's particularly here a reference to the Holy Spirit. You see in verse 17 and verse 33, Peter talking about the Holy Spirit being poured out. But, at the, but truly in verse 21, if you've got Acts chapter 2 open, it's, it's outside of our passage that we read earlier, but, but look at verse 21 and Peter says that it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so no one who calls on the name of the Lord and no one who calls on Jesus is to be excluded. And so that's really what's behind verse 39. That the promise of salvation, the promise of, of being united to Christ by faith in a Savior, that that promise is for everyone who claims it. It's open, it's extended to anyone who wants it. Um, and this is a point where I want to I say that our Baptist brothers and sisters have, have something to teach us. Um, they, I think, have been right to, to say to us and our community, our, our um, Reformed tradition for the most part, that when we turn to Acts 2.39, and it's not uncommon to hear this verse. I've used it when we baptized um, kids here at Tabernacle. You know, we'll, we'll look at the first half of verse 39 and say, see, the promise is for you and for your children. We go, see, you know, you put the sign on the children and our Baptist brothers and sisters want to remind us, wait a minute, don't, don't forget the rest of the verse. Don't forget the promise that it's not just to your children. I mean, yeah, that's true, but Peter is also telling his Jewish audience that, of course, you know, yeah, your children are in proximity to all God's promises, but so are all of those who are far off to everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So don't, don't, don't lose the forest for the trees. So while I think that our, our Baptist brothers and sisters are right to correct us if we've overemphasized the first half of verse 39, I still want to say that there's, there's something to relish in this promise for our kids. So on the one hand, we don't, we don't really know who the Lord our God will call from those who are far off. We, God's not going to exclude any that call on Jesus. But we don't really know who they are. Um, you know, so for instance, it's not my job, it's not your job to, to determine out there who the elect are. Um, that's another sermon. Um, we're, our job is to be faithful, to glorify God, to, to glorify Jesus by sharing that gospel and demonstrating that gospel to everybody, and we'll let God sort out, you know, who the chosen are. Um, our job is simply to be faithful to share this good news. We don't know who the, who, who the Lord is going to call, but we, but we do know. We do know who the sovereign God has placed into believing families. We do know who the children are of believing parents, even if it's just one of them who's a Christian, right? We do know who is going to receive the privilege of being discipled and raised in a Christian home. We do know who is going to be brought into proximity to these promises on a weekly basis and to hear God's Word and to be a part of the church. We do know who those children are, don't we? And so that's just something to remember uh, from Acts 2.39. 
Um, the gospel is really what's uh, central to this promise. It's not only the Holy Spirit being poured out, but, but this sign, this baptism that all these 3,000 people undergo is a, not just a sign to them, God's sign to them that, hey, you're mine, uh, I've united you to Christ by faith, but it's also a sign to everybody else that, who are not part of that 3,000 who are watching all this happen you know, with folded arms going, isn't that interesting? It's a sign to them too. It's a sign to the world. It's a sign of what it means to have a righteousness that is by faith. How to be united to God. How to, how to be forgiven of the sin of rejecting His Lord and Christ and having that sin wiped away and being able to call on Him who will save us. It's a sign to us. It's a sign to the world. And really, there's a lot of continuity um, across the whole span of the covenant of grace as it was first expressed to Adam and Eve, as it was expressed to Noah and to his family, as it was expressed to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and then through Jesus. There's a, there's a continuity here, um, which is why when, when we looked at this last week, which is why in Romans chapter 4, Paul can talk about the covenant made with Abraham as the, the sign of circumcision being something that the new covenant embraces. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. That's the same righteousness by faith that unites us to Jesus. Abraham had it in its you know, prototypical form, uh, a shadow of what was to come. And we've got you know, the, the big and beautiful fullness of Jesus uh, to help us understand what, what that righteousness by faith looks like, who we're believing in. So Abraham, for Abraham, the sign was circumcision. Um, and now the sign is baptism. Why has it changed? What's behind this transformation of the sign? Well, in a word, the, the old covenant sign of circumcision became obsolete. It, it just kind of it, it ran its course. And now we needed a new sign. Uh, let me give you an example. Do you, does anybody, anybody here know what one of these is? Everybody that's raising their hand uh, has no hair. <laughs> You're that old. No. Everybody who's 20 and below are going, is it a coaster? I don't, what is that? Um, it looks like a drink coaster. Um, this is a floppy disk. And what's funny to me uh, this is what you used to put in your computer if you needed to save a document and, and hit the road and, and you know, bring your document with you. You'd stick a floppy disk in the floppy disk drive that now does not exist on any of your computers. Uh, and then this was, you know, you could save about a quarter of a Microsoft Word document on it. Um, what's funny to me is that in my Microsoft Word software, it's 2016 Microsoft Word, Microsoft Office, you know, um, package from 2016. If I want to save a document, I go up into the top left-hand corner of my screen and I click a little box that looks exactly like this. Because that's what it's a picture of. In the top left-hand corner of your screen, most of your screens, it still has a little floppy disk. And most of you have no idea what that thing is. <laughs> Because it's just run its course, and it's obsolete. It's done. I don't know. They need a new sign. They need a new sign. 
and they'll come up with one, I, I am sure, this little box in the top left corner of your screen is going to go away. And it's going to be replaced by something. Maybe it'll be a little cloud or it'll be something else. But this is obsolete. And the same thing happens in the New Covenant because circumcision ran its course and it's obsolete now. Why? Well, because Jesus, when He uh, went to the cross, He he tells us um, in two places in the New Testament, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and, uh, and it is going to be brutal. It was his baptism in blood. It was what he suffered on the cross when he was crucified in the place of sinners. Jesus took our place as our representative on the cross. His blood was shed instead of ours. His blood was shed once for all. There will never be Another atoning sacrifice for sins. It's done and it's finished. That's the glory of the cross. It's done. And so the sign had to change and to shift to to glory in that truth. There's no more blood that needs to be shed. And so we've got to do away with the bloody sign. Circumcision doesn't work anymore. We need a sign that, that glorifies the fact that this is a bloodless uh, interpretation now. And so that's why baptism is here. It, it represents the same thing, that our righteousness is by faith, that, that our sins are taken away and removed from us and we're cleansed, just like the water reminds us, right? So it needs a bloodless interpretation. And the new sign has to have a broader application. A bloodless interpretation and a broader application because, as the Gospel declares, Jesus did not tell His disciples, all right, this is the risen Lord right before He ascended. He didn't gather His disciples and say, okay guys, let's huddle up. Here's your job. Go and make Jewish all of the nations, circumcising them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not what He did. He wasn't about expanding a race, a a, a physical race, a national um, kingdom. He was about building His church, which means, as Ephesians 2 tells us, that He was making one new man out of the two, Jewish and Gentile, making a third new group of people. A new nation. A holy nation. A kingdom uh, that is transcending this world and belongs to the next world. That's who we are. Um, And so, that's why the Great Commission says go and make disciples, baptize them, because we're not talking about a Jewish nation anymore. We're talking about God's people and God's kingdom. And so it has a much broader application. Furthermore, it doesn't just belong to the male children, it belongs to the females as well, and you can apply baptism to male and female. Isn't that great? So as this application becomes broader to the nations and to Uh, male and female, does it make any sense? I mean, not that this is just a logical argument, but there is logic to consider. Does it make sense to anybody that you would therefore take what's meant to be be broader in its application? Oh, but with the kids, we're going to make it more restrictive. That that, that just doesn't resonate, nor is there evidence for it. Uh, and we'll talk about the, the argument from silence and more about the, the kids um, next week. But I just wanted to, 
to put that out there to think about. Why would it become more restrictive when it comes to the kids who were receiving it beforehand when the whole point of the new sign is to be an expression of its much broader a- application? Um, let, me, let me start ra- wrapping up here. Baptism as a promise. Look, you know, the major difference between our two uh, camps within the, the Christian family, between the Baptists and our camp, the main difference is that you know, we're primarily seeing baptism as God's sign and His seal of His promise versus you know, our, our Baptist brothers and sisters who are primarily seeing it as a sign and seal of their promise. If you boil it all down, that's what it comes down to. Is it something objective or is it something subjective? And so when we think about it as, um, as a promise, um, we have to ask, well, whose promise? And so far, our Baptist brothers and sisters, for the most part, they're looking at it really as, as a, a sign and seal of their promise to follow Jesus. I've, 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 I've believed in Jesus, I've repented, and now I'm going to show that repentance through my baptism. Um, now, you see this in some of the creeds. You can go to, uh, I was looking at uh, this Bible church in Texas, and a lot of churches you can go online, and it goes, what do we believe? And you click on that, and it tells you. And so this church says that water baptism is an outward testimony of a person's belief in Christ. And, you know, there it is in black and white or in pixels, whatever way you prefer. Um, stating this truth that in their fundamental view of baptism, it, it is a sign of what the believer has done, the new believer. Um, and in just a, a few weeks, a bunch of us are heading off to Louisville to go to Together for the Gospel, where it's a bunch of... Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ coming together, whether they're Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or Anglican or whoever, it doesn't matter. As long as you're holding on to Jesus, we're together for the gospel. Um, and there's going to be some division there among Baptists and non-Baptists. Mark Dever is one of the you know, four guys who put together for the gospel on, uh, and you've got other guys there as well uh, who are Baptists, and there's Presbyterians, and they're all coming together. But Mark Dever in Capitol Hill Baptist Church in their statement on baptism, they put it this way, that we believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Ghost to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior. So again, this is, this is a, hopefully a friendly discussion. I'm just making it clear that the distinction is between those that believe that baptism is a sign of what I am doing Versus a sign of what God has done. Is is this my promise to God or is it God's promise to me? And I want to affirm that there is validity to that. There is certainly validity to me making a promise to God. And that's why when we baptize adults or, or children who are making a profession of faith, we ask them to make vows. And they answer five questions. And yes, there's an ingredient there that has to do with our affirming and making, you know, uh, agreeing publicly that yes, I am going to follow Jesus. But that's not all that's happening. And I would say that's not even primarily what's happening. That the principal biblical reality behind the sacraments is that God has given His signs of His covenant to His people. And that baptism is principally a sign of what God has done to save us rather than what we have done to respond to that salvation. So 
So when it boils down, I want you to kind of consider it from this angle. Which of these positions glorifies God more? Which of these positions is a clearer sign and seal of the gospel of God's grace? Which of these positions has a a greater biblical warrant? Um, So when you're thinking about kids, if you look at the sacraments, if you look at baptism in particular, only from the, the subjective position of my pledge of allegiance to Jesus, my pledge of loyalty, then of course, of course, you're going to insist that the sign only belongs to those who are capable of making that pledge. I would agree. But on the other hand, if you believe that the covenant is God's, the promises are God's, the sign is God's, then you are free to put the sign of the covenant on your children because it's not primarily a subjective promise from the believer. Primarily, it is an objective promise to believers and to their children. We'll talk more about this next week when we wrap up this mini-series, but Listen, God did not give us baptism as a topic intended to divide us. The whole, at the, at the, at the core of baptism, right, is, is union with Christ. And because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, union with each other. I'm not asking you what fundamentally you believe about baptism because you, you can, we can have this discussion until the cows come home. But if you never really settle on what do you believe about Jesus, you're missing the whole point. Because this, this sign is meant to point us to the one who unites us to God, who has forgiven our sins, who has shown us what cosmic reality looks like. He was telling us the truth. He wasn't lying. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't a myth. He was real. And He's given us His body and His blood. He has atoned for our sins. And unless you are trusting in Him, Unless your plea is mercy, Lord, have mercy, you're never going to really have the substance of what the sign is pointing to. But if you have Jesus, you have everything that that sign is indicating, and eternity awaits you in, in the happiness that God has for us. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have provided a covenant sign and seal for us to to remember that you are faithful, that you love us and you've put your name on us. Lord, would you undergird our faith? Would you strengthen our faith? And would you help us to, uh, to know what we believe so that we can see a clearer picture of Jesus? Uh, and Lord, help us to love one another when we disagree uh, about some of the conclusions we come to biblically. Help us to honor the body of Christ. Help us to glorify the one Uh, who is not judging us based on our doctrine of baptism, uh, but is calling us to be united under the blood of Jesus. So Lord, help us to be a, a healthy demonstration of your church, which loves you, which loves our neighbor, which loves one another. And Lord, would you grow us in our understanding of what the covenant is telling us and teaching us, that we are yours, that you are our God, that we belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray.